looking to stand out from the crowd? Are you looking for exclusive content you can't get anywhere else? Sign up for the shoulder of Orion Patreon at bladerunnerpodcast.com slash support and show the world you're something special. The following audio entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. Hey, buddy. How are you doing? Um, I'm Patrick, good. Patrick and I are, are kind of just off a, well, he had a whirlwind weekend. Where did you go to New, to New Hampshire? New Hampshire, yeah. We got a little weekend away for Valentine's Day, which, which sounded great. Or looked awesome. He sent some yeah, photos. Nice. Uh, I'm just back from like 16, 17 days on the East Coast, the last three of which I spent with Patrick which was great, but it was never long enough. I feel like I get to your house. I'm like, oh yeah, we're going to hang out. And then boom, it's done. I know. You know what? I was just realizing, you know, this time last week, I was about to, we, we were actually in the car coming back to my place. I just picked you up this time That's last right. week. That was a week That's ago. Right. Isn't that crazy? It feels like it was two ago. years ago for some reason. I know. It's crazy. It's crazy, my friend. Well, we At miss you. Rate, the whole family does. But like uh, I, I miss say, you guys too. The news that broke shortly after that was pretty huge. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Indeed. Indeed. Uh, so yeah, everyone knows, I, I would imagine at this point that Alcon and Amazon have broken news that they are going to release a 10 episode Blade Runner 2049 follow-up called Blade Runner 2099 set 50 years in the future. It's going to be premiered on Amazon. We got a scoop about this a couple months ago, didn't we? We did. Should we talk about it? Was that? <laughs> well, so th this is something that has come up. It came up actually earlier than that with us too. We've had a couple of like accidental semi reveals about this series over the last year or so with just people who have come on the show who work with the IP or who know about it. And um, it's, you know, it was bubbled up a little bit le late in the winter time by Ridley Scott. We was talking to the BBC. It's something that we've known. We've known that something was coming streaming related. But of course, uh, you know, when we asked Alcon about it, they, and, you know, of course they would do this, you know, kind of neither confirmed nor denied and said, you know, we're not really here to, to discuss these things, which is fine. So we, you know, it was clear that something was coming, uh, but the, the, the scope of this really caught me off guard. The fact that it's a 10 episode live action series set 20, 50 years uh, to clarify, not in, not 20, not 50 years from now, but 50 years from 2049. So like really far from now, nine, mm -hmm. you know, 80, I can't do math today, whatever. It's 2022. So this is 77 years in the future from now, which, uh, you yeah. know, maybe we'll be here for, who knows, uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out if, if we are here. <laughs> uh, I don't think years, I will be. <laughs> if we are, we should do a live event to commemorate the anniversary. I'm so old. I'm 300 uh, years old. <laughs> it's a huge deal. It it really uh it really is, and of course, it's executive produced also by Ridley Scott. You know, through Scott Free Productions. So this is uh, you know, this is a you know, a list level production team approaching this IP, and it's being show run by Silka Louisa, who is a screenwriter I had never heard of before. I've never heard of her either. 
and I was, you know, doing some research ahead. So I, I in a little bit can read a little bit more about her. She has a series that's about to come out starring Elizabeth Moss on Apple TV plus, which will be a big breakout for her, but it seems like she's a pretty new voice, at least in terms of, you know, mainstream entertainment. And I'm excited. There's, there's a reason they chose her, I'm sure. And I can't wait to see what she brings to it. I'm excited too. And, uh, to get into some of the, the details, Ridley Scott is attached to this as an executive producer. Now, there's some terms. I mean, I want to talk about some like, what could this be about? It's a follow-up to 2049. So what does that mean? And we'll get into that in a little bit. But before we do, Ridley Scott is attached as an executive director. Again, to your point, he mentioned last year, late last year, that there was a pilot script already done, that there was a Bible and if no one knows what that means, so when you're pitching a script to a network or to a studio, you have your first spec, and then you have your Bible. Like, this is where it's going to go after that. And it's images and script text and storylines and all that kind of thing together. So that when you present it to the studio, they're like, they'll have all of the knowledge that they need to say yay or nay. Um, so Ridley Scott said they had all of that, which was good. Ridley Scott says a lot of stuff all the time. So you never really know what's happening or what isn't. We do know now that this is happening. Um, and I'm a little bit, you know, well, first of all, they talked about this, this series being fast-tracked. Do you remember reading some of that language? Yeah. Which I thought was strange. And it was a little, gave me a little cause for concern because I, I don't think Blade Runner should ever be fast-tracked. Um, however, if they have a good script in place, if they know what they're doing, if they have a, a good sense of world building. I mean, think about all the work that went into 2049. I mean, years of work to build that world. So you're doing this on a, a different scale, I, but the same scale in a way. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to shortchange Blade Runner. They can't, if they're going to release a good product. Right. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see like what this looks like how what how big the scope is like when is this going to premiere is it going to premiere next year i would think if they're fast tracking this it's for the for a 2023 premiere i don't know for sure that news will probably be forthcoming but uh, it's interesting what do you think about ridley scott being involved and him possibly directing they said if this production moves quick enough he will direct a couple of episodes i feel like my head is reeling from there's there's so much to consider with this mm -hmm. Uh, as far as Ridley Scott goes, I, you know, I, I still have immense respect for the work that he's done in his life. I'm not crazy about a lot of the newer stuff that he's done, but uh, having him there is a good thing for me. He was he was in the, the same capacity that he's been at least announced as being involved for sure with the series as he was in 2049, which was, you know, to be fair, five years ago now. So even if this is fast track, it's, you know, makes sense that if there have been story ideas percolating since 2017 for this, that that's, you know, five years of potential pre-development time. So like, you know, when they say fast-tracked, it doesn't necessarily mean, of course, that like the script just kind of came together. This could have been something that's been percolating for a long time. And uh, as far as Ridley goes, I, I hope that if he does direct it, I mean, it would be great to have him direct the pilot for it. I think that would be wonderful. I think having his visual, you know, identity all over the look of it and then having him sort of move on to allow others to direct things could be really good. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's just, it's interesting. Whenever Ridley is involved in something, there's a real sense of almost mania around it nowadays. That, that's really what I feel because he is in such a hurry and he's doing so many different projects all the time. 
and he's so fat every time he does a shoot now as we've talked about ad nauseum you know he has eight cameras set up and he tries to get everything done in one take as much as he can so he can just kind of move on and set up the next one and then keep going there's a real sense of hurriedness to him lately Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. does not feel great for blade runner so if he can help establish the look and feel of it and then be there in a supportive role that would be great for me but i don't think i mean we're talking about potentially a 12 to 14 hour series depending on how long these episodes are Mm -hmm. you know a lot of these premium shows on on amazon prime or on apple tv you know plus these shows are over an hour sometimes if they're large format episodes so this could be a shitload of content which i would hope they would not be rushing through but what do you think about about really being attached to this um i think for the the legacy of the of the ip i think it's a good thing um on the outset i think ridley scott for all intents and purposes, is sort of the father of Blade Runner. He is the father of this genre. He he is responsible in part for for producing what we love on film. Also, it's the same with 2049. I mean, Ridley Scott was there hashing that story out before Denis Villeneuve was ever even involved. So hats off to him. My concern is seeing his work lately and i know he had a really good film that i haven't seen the last duel which i've heard praise about but i also know that script was really great and in place for him so he wasn't really involved in the process of like well well, what's the story and put piecing it together that script was there and he worked with matt damon and ben affleck and they had a great script and they made a great film some of my concern with Ridley Scott is a lot of his work looks the same these days. It's very gray, very monochromatic. Everything he's doing looks like that because he's bringing the same group of talent over and over and over with him to shoot this work. So all of his work looks the same, which is disappointing because Ridley Scott never used to do that. His work used to be more colorful. It used to be have more life. Um, and I don't want a Blade Runner to look like Raised by Wolves. I don't want a Blade Runner to look like The Last Duel. I don't want a Blade Runner to look like, I don't know, any of the number of projects that he's made. Like Now, to that point, The House of Gucci or House of Gucci looked very colorful. It looked very vibrant and alive. I haven't seen the film. I'm not really interested in it. I don't know what the reviews are for it per se, but it looked very alive and looked a little bit more colorful than Ridley Scott is used to doing. So I thought, okay, he can do some color. And I just want him to, my hope is if he gets into this show and he directs a couple of episodes, we see the Ridley Scott that made the original film in, in 19, you know, 81, whenever they started production on that show. Um, that's the Ridley Scott that I'd like to see. So I'm apprehensive, but I think to open this conversation up a little bit wider, this is a hard thing for them to do, to get 10 to 14 hours to your point of Blade Runner to a place where we can experience this and walk away loving it the way we do the first two films. 10 hours of this, whoa, that's a hard ask. That's a hard ask. I I said on my uh, social media post a couple of days ago that this show has to be close to perfect. And I know that that's a big, like, well, someone's, I think our friend Rick was like, well, Jamie, it's a sh- TV show, but there are plenty of amazing TV shows out there, right? You know? Yeah. Um, and Including so The a, Expanse, which is Alcon absolutely. as well. Like the, and, and also on Amazon. So like the, yep. there are mechanisms in place to do great yep. entertainment with this. The Expanse Foundation, there's amazing television out there. Um, with and I, Sometimes it's just the, the alchemy of like everybody being in the right place at the right time. And then all of a sudden magic happens, which I think, could it possibly work for this? So we'll see. 
You know, a part of why The Last Duel, which I think was fantastic, was so good, I think, is that the screenplay was helmed by a younger woman. And that's something that this also has going for it. And Ridley seemed very much to not get in the way of her uh, spin on the story, because not spin, but the story is very much, it, although it, it pretends to be many things, ultimately is very much seated from the perspective of the female, you know, lead character in it. And it feels very authentic to that. Um, Silka Louisa, the screenwriter for this, is a younger woman. She has, you know, it seems like a lot of the projects that she has done so far, and, and based on her bio, uh, you know, they sent her around young women. I, I think this could be a great counterweight to Ridley, who seems to be really listening to, you know, some of these younger filmmakers now. Uh, I think that that could be the right voice to help counterbalance some of his things. You know, a lot of this, of course, like you're saying, is going to depend. Is he going to bring Darius Wolski back as the cinematographer? Is it going to be the same, you know, Scott Free crew? Uh, we don't know any of that yet, but what we do know is that, you know, it, it, the Amazon Prime is uh, is putting enormous bu budgets behind projects, as everybody knows mm -hmm. who saw the Super Bowl and saw the Lord of the Rings news. These are, you know, and also the Expanse, they, they have no problem committing a lot of resources to something. Blade Runner, of course, as an IP, is a marquee level intellectual property if not necessarily a blockbuster level attraction in the way that Lord of the Rings is. So it'll be interesting to see how they approach putting this whole thing together. But just, you know, going back to the expectations that you were talking about, something that I have been continually trying to wrap my mind around is how is why it's set so far into the future, right? So first off, I need to get it out that 2099 has special meaning personally for me because it's like my favorite Marvel comics, like subgroup. And, you know, Spider-Man 2099 is my favorite Spider-Man character. A lot of 2099 stuff is like, fucking great and was inspired a lot by Blade Runner aesthetically so anybody who's out there who's a Marvel fan who's read the 2099 comics whether we're talking about you know uh, you know Ghost Rider 2099 Punisher 2099 Spider-Man 2099 you'll know what I'm talking about but the comics that are set in 2099 are like very very futuristic feeling of course that's Marvel comics it's an entirely separate universe but I'm saying it because you know that's a glimpse into what this world could look like if we go back to Blade Runner for a second 2099 is so far removed from anything that we've gotten to date, right? It's 50 years after 2049, which also felt like a big leap in time. And it was, mm -hmm. and it was justified because the world was so different, you know, being separated by three and a half decades since the, the world of the first film. But since Alcon acquired the property over a decade ago now, they have been, you know, whittling out very gradually from center, right? We got 20, you know, obviously 2049, the film, we got Black Lotus, which was 2032. We got comics set in 2019, which was when the first film was set, obviously, also 2029 and 2009. We've been getting this little tiny whittling away. You know, we have the Blackout 22 short, you know, we, we have mm -hmm. a lot of these little glimpses into this pretty contained world. And then 2049 is this kind of outlier that's sitting there. 2099 is so far into the future from that. So to me, as a nerd for this stuff who is primed to have all of these like expectations be let down because that's just the way that you know we all approach these things because we care about them a lot it will be really hard for me to see 2099 as a justified world for this i feel like it is very far away from the events that we see in 2049 so what i was saying over the weekend in our little text thread about this was if this this can kind of be two different things i think either we have like a wallace protein farm solution part two happen at some point so the world is revitalized and it starts resembling more the world that we saw before the events of the blackout etc it's kind of like you know all of the irradiation 
and the atmospheric you know, depletion has been corrected somewhat by some sort of processing and some company is now rising up and it's creating you know, a more sustainable planet, which I think would be really cool to see. I mean, a Blade Runner set in like, a, you know, an ecologically balanced world would be very crazy if they could pull that off philosophically. Or it could also be the, what we see from 2019 to 2049, which is this huge depletion. If it gets ravaged even further in that 50-year period, we're talking like post-post-apocalyptic Blade Runner, which also could be really cool. But to me, it will be very hard for them to get that timeline to feel authentic similar to how Black Lotus has had this uphill battle where it takes place a decade after the world collapses, you know, momentarily from the blackout. And yet aesthetically, the world looks basically like nothing ever happened to it. I really personally am just hoping that that's not the type of storytelling, although Black Lotus has plenty going for it outside of that. I hope that's not what we see with this series. I hope it feels like it's set then for a very particular reason. And I think it might be, you know? Yeah, I would agree with uh, all of your points. I think that when they were approaching the original film, Ridley Scott went on record talking about, well, what will the future look like? He brought in futurists to talk about and to iterate what that our future would look like. Back when that future was more, more of a, a, a discussion about, well, where are we going? We don't really know. And it seemed kind of doom and gloom, honestly. I mean, that's, and then when he did 2019, it felt dystopian, it felt disconnected, it felt, like a mismatch of cultures and just kind of a collapse of the world that we know. And then 2049 builds on that. Um, I don't really wanna to discuss too much like the comics or Black Lotus. I think that they're kind of their own thing. I, you can read those things and enjoy them, um, but I really think this these films and the show are gonna be its own thing. And I actually like that they're going 50 years in the future because at least in my idea, it rids them of having to be very connected to Decker or Rachel or kind of all of those things. It, it, it pushes us to uh, newer stories, newer characters. That's what I think we really need to see. I think we need to leave Decker behind. Now, I don't think at all that we're not ever going to hear about Decker or Rachel or Staline. If Staline is this godchild in some ways of a replicant and a human or whatever, um, she is the the catalyst for whatever might be happening in the future. And so replicant revolution, um, I don't really know, but I, but I also think in terms of what that future is, talking to scientists and ecologists today, it doesn't look good. It still doesn't look good. It looks worse. Um, we are headed on a collision course with this planet um, because of our misuse of it. So in my opinion, I think the world that we see in 2049 is going to be similar to the world we see in 2099. It's just going to be even worse. It's going to be even desolate. Now, I'm of the opinion that it's going to be a bit of a, a reversal where the only people left on earth are replicants. Humans are forbidden. And a, maybe a human shows up. Um, and I was thinking about, well, who is going to be the antagonist? What's Who's going to be still in control? Because obviously replicants are going to be in play. So maybe it's Neander Wallace. Maybe Neander Wallace has found a way to put his consciousness in the body of a replicant. So he lives forever. And I love that idea. I mean, I don't, I don't, again, I don't, who knows, who knows? I'm just spitballing. And like we did with 2049, you know, I mean, we had many conversations wondering what they were going to do. And some of those things we got right, some of those things we got wrong. Um, but I'm really, really excited. 
<laughs> Those are really cool ideas. We'll we'll see what happens. I, I feel like personally, I kind of hope Wallace isn't isn't really a part of it, just because I'm kind of burned out on, you know, Black Lotus and uh, and uh, on all the the gradual taking away of mystery around that character. You know, I I kind of hope that that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. I kind of hope there's some sort of a, of a you know, the central problem in 2049 isn't replicants for humans anymore, right? Like that's something that has been largely at least as far as humans are concerned, corrected. It's really the atmosphere and it's the environment and it's the fact that that they're living in this desiccated world. So like that's the great solution that they're looking for. And, and I, I, it would be cool to see somebody find a way to, to like quote unquote fix that and then to see what would happen to society as a result of like all of these people who were displaced and living in these in these you know huge cities because they had to they had no other choice if all of a sudden the countryside was open again and these people had to like adapt to that it could be really really interesting to see what that would do to people you know mentally but also you could look at it like i i think it'd be cool to have a, almost like a judge dread influence like mega city one thing where the only viable place for life now is los angeles you know mm-hmm. Everything else is gone. All of the remainder of humanity who's on world has had to just coalesce all of their resources into one sustainable bio bubble that houses everybody, right? So it's just these enormous tower blocks for people, and it's even more oppressive. The idea of repli- so so what you're saying about replicants eventually like you know taking control, I think is really interesting, and that could be you know 50 years is a long time for a resistance movement to take flight. And the resistance movement that we see in 2049, of course, has been going on already in different guises, as we know from the comics, etc. So like that's a long time for a movement to get powerful, and of course that brings its own questions because what happens when you overthrow a system? You know, as we've noticed, whenever there's a power vacuum, usually bad forces infiltrate it, and then you know we get new problems. So if if that replicant resistance movement is in power and is subjugating humans or something, that could obviously be really fascinating too. But this this idea of setting it so far in the future, I think, is something that is going to be very fun to think about and to try to, you know, uh, do some archaeology around as we start getting more information and casting sheet leaks or whatever, or we start seeing photos from the set or like pre-production artwork. Um, before we go any more into that, I, I want to just read, I have um, Silka Louisa, who of course is the, is, the, is the head, she's the showrunner for this. I have her bio on Film Independent pulled up and I, I wanted to read the beginning and the end of it to give kind of an insight, you know, and how she defines herself as an artist, because it might help us fill in some blanks here. So, so she says, quote, growing up in Miami with a superstitious Dominican mother, Silka Louisa's upbringing was filled with strong women and few too many psychics. Her writing reflects both women who won't take no for an answer and the hope that there's some magic waiting for everyone. And then she goes through a lot of awards and fellowships that she's gotten. And then she says, fueled by the works of occultists, Tolkien, and conspiracy theorists, she spends her day writing stories, spends her days writing stories that turn the mundane into the fantastic. So very different perspective for Blade Runner, which I think could be a good thing. And very, I, I really truly don't know what that's going to look like I, I truly don't know but i think it's great that they're you know bringing new blood into this and that there's she's clearly a talented person and I, I'm, I'm excited to see what she does with it yeah i am as well and i you know i for well, a couple of comments from adam adam alexander ride he said clean slate in terms of like what it should be and then our good friend and former co-host daniele ferlito says yeah i hope someone just goes for completely new characters and new ideas. And I think that's a, I think that's a really good thing. However, I think I'm not big on fan service. I think fan service is doing in IPs lately. I think fan service is 
or nostalgia for the sake of nostalgia um, to kind of get your IP going. I think that that's, that's a tough one. And I think Denis really balanced that. Like there's things that we saw, there's things that we knew or things that we were familiar with in terms of the original film that we saw in Blade Runner 2049, but it was also new enough and different enough to push us further than that, to introduce us to an, I mean, K is, you know, inscribed on our hearts now. And he, you know, he never existed before those films or before his film. Um, so I really would love them to do that. And I would imagine it's going to be a female protagonist based off of what you read, um, which I'm fine with. I think that it's, it's, it's a needed thing. I think it's a, it's a, a, a world that needs a little bit more of a balance in terms of the, you know, men kind of being the stars and the women are the, the foreground. That's kind of both films have been that way. And I know the comics have tried to write that ship a little bit. Also, Black Lotus definitely tries to write that ship just to balance things out again. And But I also think a 10-hour, 14-hour show can host more than one character doesn't need to just be one Blade Runner. Maybe it's about a replicant. Maybe it's about a couple of Blade Runners. Maybe Blade Runners don't even exist anymore. I, 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 whatever, what, whatever world that they're setting up, it's, it's just ready for multiple characters doing a varying amount of things to kind of bring us in. Um, and I don't want to see the same, you know, some of my criticisms for Black Lotus is, you know, Joseph, who's the Blade Runner, he's a, essentially a, a Deckard all over again in a different way, but he's a Deckard. I don't want to see that again. I don't want to see, like, I don't need to see inside Deckard's apartment again. I don't need to see like Easter eggs for whatever, or look, oh, they're outside, you know, Kay's house. Like, I don't need to see that. Tell a good story. I do think them connecting these films, which obviously they are, they're specific in their language, that it's a sequel series to Blade Runner 2049. So there's going to be some things in play set up in these films that we're going to see later on. I mean, another crazy idea, and you're going to laugh at me for this, but that's okay, <laughs> was what if they continue, what if replicants weren't able to procreate, but what if they continue to, what if they continue to kind of mine that territory? Well, how do we get this? So they keep making versions of Rachel over and over and over to see if they can get it right. So they're using her DNA or whatever they, however they manufacture replicants to see, we need one. We need one of these copies to give birth. And they finally come to one that does. Um, I don't know. That's just crazy. Um, but that would be something that would be really interesting to me where they're, uh, but it would, I don't know if it would be replicants doing this to each other, where replicants are now in charge of their own production in a way. So they are, even if they can't have children, they are essentially the arbitrary, the what's the word what's that word arbit arbiter arbiter of their own cr creation even if they're not doing it uh physically they're doing it you know in a, in a warehouse or wherever however they're made um which i think would be really really interesting i i i wouldn't i think if we get to 2099 and replicants are just having babies all over the place it would be a little bit less interesting i think it just, needs to be just fucking left and right yeah i know <laughs> i think it would be more interesting to see them struggle like we can only be as many as we can make and there's an end of the line here or something i don't know i also think it's worth mentioning that this could very easily take place off world which would be a big deal yep. and i think probably would make more sense because if the planet in 2049 is as screwed up as it is then 50 years from then you know it seems 
you know, like a, a very easy way out would be to get off world because they already are doing that. So uh, that would be another interesting thing. You know, like what happens if we're off world and it's a replicant society that has founded this utopia somewhere? Of course, <laughs> I'm thinking this is sort of setting up Scott pulling raised by wolves into it, which would be oh, no, a, please a big deal. Um, but I'm, I'm also, I, I want to point out that Michael Green is also executive producing this. And so, yes. so you have, there's like nine executive producers for this thing, which isn't unheard of for a television series, but there's, there's a lot. In addition to, to Alcon, there's Scott Free, there's, uh, you know, Bud Roberts and Cynthia Yorkin, there's uh, Michael Green, there's all of these people involved. And most of them, actually all of the people I just mentioned have pretty long lasting connections to Blade Runner to begin with. So like they're people who I think would know what risks to take. We have seen glimpses of off world in the comics and that has been pretty well received by people because Michael Green, you know, of course was story consultant and also wrote many of them and or, or co-wrote. And he, uh, you know, did a good job, I think of maintaining some mystery around off world, but making it believably, you know, uh, and, and believable and intriguing so that could be cool to see an off-world series of course thinking about the closest you know analog we have currently to this being the expanse because it is alcon because it is amazon because it is you know a science fiction long-form streaming series the the way that they treat off-world you know stuff in that and space colonization and everything which of course is you know taken from the books it's really interesting i think and and i think that could be another viable way that this could you know do its own thing like dan was saying but also feel tied to the universe. If we go off world and we have something paradoxical or something, that could be cool. Almost like a twilight zone where we're off world and we're seeing this reflected mirror image of what on world looked like 50 years earlier, but somewhere else, you know? That could be interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. If done right, for sure. Um, at the same time, part of me wants off world to remain like heaven. Does it exist? What does it look like? We'll never know. Um, but I think, again, if the story is good, if the characters are good, this is like my mantra, we won't care. We won't care yeah. where it is. If we're invested, it won't really matter. I do, here's, uh, and maybe this is a fanboy hope. I would love for them to go to a couple of locations in LA to film a couple of scenes or whatever for the show. Um, as much as I love 2049, and I think it's a masterpiece, and we all agree on that, or most of us do, um, I miss seeing LA. I'm missing actual LA. Part of the charm of the original is that they went to places in Los Angeles, which really grounded it in a way that 2049, but 2049 was just kind of, it's almost like cloud city. Things are so different. The world is so different post blackout that nothing's even familiar anymore, which makes sense for sure. But I would love for this show to actually say, Hey, let's, let's go to this place in Los Angeles. Let's just ground a little bit so that it just creates, it creates a little bit more of a, a lasting legacy. Not that 2049 doesn't have a lasting legacy. And there are places in Budapest where you can go and see some of the interior or exterior locations, which is great. But to bring it home to like LA, which is where all of this started, that's my hope that they really do that. And they take the time and it would be probably expensive if the show shoots in Australia, which it looks like it is. Um, I really just hope that they kind of, broaden their horizons a little bit and kind of come back to where it all started just for but not for the sake of oh let's do this to service the fans do it in service of the story first that's what they need to do but i really would love an more of established connection to real world i mean i know now things are kind of parallel it's not our world anymore it's a it's an imagined future um but at the same time 
we're headed towards that imagined future in our own way. Maybe we don't have spinners, but with the state of climate change and everything that's going on in this world, uh, things aren't looking good. Um, but again, to tie it all back, I would just love for them to to visit, so not just create all of this in a studio space somewhere, really create, really go somewhere that means something to us. I would love that too. I, I, I do think it's probably worth noting that it's probably not going to happen. I, I think because of the fact that this is so far removed into the future. So like LA would just probably have to look even so much different than 2019 yeah. does. Um, and if there are bombed out relics or something that would re require so much green screen that they would probably, a lot of streaming series, I think taking the Mandalorian as their example are now filming almost entirely digitally with very few locations. And I think COVID has made that even worse because it's just that much harder to set up new shoots and locations and things. Mm -hmm. So like, who knows? I would love that. I think that would be great. I would love Alcon and Scott Free and Amazon to make this a very fan-centric experience in general. Like, you know, it doesn't mean having Easter eggs everywhere, but have fans invited to be extras in the in it, you know, like make this stuff like, I mean, like look at Star Trek, for example, right? Star Trek is something that I personally don't have any relationship with, but I do know because so many of my friends do that Star Trek is like always inviting people in the fan community, whether it be, you know, officially sanctioned conventions or people coming to be background extras because they win some kind of a contest or something. I feel like, like Star Trek is a property that's very friendly with fans. I would love for Blade Runner to, but there's no reason it shouldn't be more like that. Like look at our event in 2019, look at how many people came from, we had people from Australia there, we had people from all over the world coming and feeling so at home and so happy. Like this is a great opportunity, I think, even if they can't shoot it in LA or shoot parts of it in LA to at least shoot it with fans being part of the experience, like make it something that we are on the inside of because like uh, it, you know, in some ways belongs to us too. And I think that that's worth remembering that, you know, I mean, I, I haven't been here since the beginning because it came out before I was born, but, but I've been here for my, ever since I first saw the VHS tape as an 11 or 12 year old, I have, you know, loved this thing. And, and mm -hmm. that gives me some degree of ownership, I think. Yes. That, you know? Yes. Uh, I'm going to pivot away for this, from this topic, just for a second. And I'm going to yeah. ask you, who would you want to score this show? Other than me? Uh, <laughs> who would I want to score it? Obviously, it's a big question because I, I I have like favorites in mind, but I'm trying to think who would actually do the most justice to it. If they could bring back Van Van Gellis for this, He's, he wouldn't do it. I I don't think so either. But can you imagine if they score if they scored him if they got him to do? I mean, but uh, what's his name? Um, who did Lord of the Rings score? What's his name? Um, uh, oh sure, Howard Shore. Howard Shore, he's doing the the music for the series, along with Bear McCreary, who I all really also enjoy. I like, I like Bear McCreary a lot. Yeah. I didn't like his work for Foundation. It felt a little bit just less interesting. But yeah. um, they have both of those guys working on the, the Rings of Power, which I think is fantastic. The score for The Lord of the Rings, which I don't know if you've actually listened to. I know fantasy isn't your thing. It's really fantastic. Um, but if, again, I know this is like wild dreaming, but score is important. And I think some takeaways from Black Lotus are what Black Lotus didn't have that I really wanted it to have was immersion of sights and sounds of the late, of, of LA, where she was. There was no real immersion in terms of the sound design. It wasn't really there. Mm -hmm. It got a little bit better as a, in the second half of the, of the show. Um, but and the score was okay. It, it it worked. It was very ambient. It wasn't didn't have its own character. It was just kind of ambient in there to kind of set a mood. But I really wanted uh, a composer to conjure Blade Runner the way Vangelis did, the way 
Zimmer and Wallfish did. Um, it needs that. It needs that like attention to detail for every episode. I mean, it's going to be a huge, huge undertaking, which I would imagine they're probably starting now um, trying to figure out, well, what is this world? What is it going to sound like? Because to, I, I mean, you would know this more than I would, but like to, to write music for f- 10 to 12 to 14 hours, that is a big task. It's insane. And that's going to take yeah. months and months and months and months and months, which means they needed, they probably are already starting trying yeah. to figure out what that is. I mean, if you listen to most tele, even like really great marquee level television, the the soundtracks typically reuse a lot of cues for things because they just sort of have to. Like you can't, especially in the if if I were writing me personally, like a symphonic piece that was twelve hours long, I mean that's a decade project. That's an enormous scale of a, in terms of new music that continuously develops, right? But you're talking about a soundtrack, which is also relying on all of these other things that you've spotted out with the director and with the sound design team and with all these other people. And there's all these other considerations and there's beats and you have an editor who is, it'd be great to have Joe Walker edit this, by the way, who's, you know, who is in charge of pacing everything out. Like there's so many considerations that to do 10 to 12 hours of new music, is it's just it's not going to happen like there's going to be probably something like 30 or 40 cues that are reused throughout the series right a good I, I think precedent for how this can work well is the soundtrack for devs which we talk a little bit about on our recent annihilation uh sublime noise episode for patreon where you have jeff barrow and uh, ben salisbury creating what feels very new and very interesting and dynamic you know music that's two hours long but it's reused a lot throughout the series and the cues kind of reappear so I, I, I personally would rather a lot of television, even a show like Ozark, for example, which we're about to be done with the final season of, you know, or at least the first half of the final season now, like that's a great show. It's got great talent attached to it. Everybody's really good. The soundtrack is really interesting, but most of the soundtrack is just like ominous undertones, right? Most television, most of the, of the, the sound world that you get is what you're saying. It's just ambient sort of, you know, it's just sort of sitting there creating a mood and Blade Runner, the film, is not unique, but it's close to unique in that basically the entire soundtrack is like there's no moments like that. Everything is is atmospheric, but it's also like you can just fall into it at any given point in time and feel completely enveloped by the world that it creates. To do that for a streaming series, to me, is probably too high of a task, which is why I think the best approach would be to have a collective of people working on this together, to have yes. people from different backgrounds coming together and creating whether it's through composed or whether it's isolated music cues that are then used by the showrunners to you know chop and paste and create these dynamic things that i think could work really well and i think um you know that that collective should not just be traditional composers it should also be world musicians i think it should include you know like it would be great michael levi yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, I, I think it would just be great to get new new voices. You know, Michael Levi is interesting in that they haven't actually done that much film scoring. There's only yes. a few credits, right? They're amazing. Like, I, I think that their work is incredible, obviously. And we're going to talk about that in Sublime Noise very soon, tomorrow, yes. literally. But I think that what we need is uh, different voices, polyglot, you know? Create the world of Blade Runner. You're not going to come close to Vangelis' score for the first movie again. You have way too much material to cover, and it's just you're not going to defeat history like that. So yeah. try to create something new from the ground up, however yeah. that works. I would agree. Uh, one of our watchers, listeners, Philip Pace, says, 
Clint Mansell or the likes of Nils Fromm, which I think are great choices. I love Nils Fromm's work. I need to explore more of his because I love, there's a piece he did for Ed Astra, which I just yeah. adore. I listen to it over and over and over. Um, there's also this really great composer named Patrick Green. That I think yeah, there is. And he composed the score for Gethsemane, which is our Blade Runner, in-universe Blade Runner feature-length audio drama. So if anyone wants just to saying. check out his work. Just, just saying. saying, just saying, just um, saying. Can you imagine? Oh, oh also, remember for Ed Astra, the show. <laughs> <laughs> I got the job. Um, for Ed Astra, you know, Max Richter also was a part of yes. that. Yes, and his he's amazing too. But but again, these we're, we're talking almost exclusively about men too, which is which is worth oh yeah worth pointing out. It's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I, I think yeah. I think there are people you know like like Michael Levi, right? But people who are off our radar potentially radar who might be really great fits for this who have different perspectives. I feel like. There's Rachel Portman odd... would be amazing. I don't Who's know that? if you're familiar. She did the score for Little Women. She's in the score for um, some HBO work. Her, 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 there's something about the way she composes that feels timeless. She has a mm. timelessness. I don't know. I don't know, like how diverse she is in terms of instrumentation, um, but I love what she scores. I love it. Cool. So I think she might be a great. Uh, you or know, or somebody gonna... like. Oh, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, just before I forget, because we're talking about, you know, other voices, I think Hildur uh, would be amazing. Hildur Guanad, I can't ever say her name, Guanadatir, the Icelandic mm. composer who did Chernobyl and Joker. And oh, yes, like yes, I mean, that yes. would be incredible to have like a Chernobyl influenced. Because here's the thing is, is what, what I love about Hildur's work is that she adapts the, the, you know, the harmonic vocabulary of everything that she's doing to the story she's telling. So she can do a traditional cello influence because she's a cellist score for Joker, which, which was fine. I think it was good. It won the Academy Award, I believe actually. Um, but she can also do something like for Chernobyl where she's sampling factory sounds and using that to create the tapestry. I think at the heart of why Evangelis's work stands the test of time so well is the experimental nature of it. The fact that it was born out of the experience of the film. I think having people approach this as a new project that demands its own newness would be great. And Hilda is somebody who does it all the time. So she'd be, you know, there's plenty of people who would do a great job. Yeah, and I, I was watching 2019, the original film a couple of days ago. And I, I just, you know, that I see again, and I've seen these scenes over and over where Deckard is on the street and there's this convergence of culture. And it's not just, visual culture people from other countries it's audible too you're seeing harry krishna as you're hearing you're hearing people kind of yelling in different languages you're hearing japanese songs you're hearing all of this but it's also a part of the score so whatever they do i don't know what this world in 2099 is going to look like i do hope it's they continue that convergence of sound they pulled back on that for 2049, which I think was appropriate. I love the score. It was more of a distant, longing, ethereal score. But I hope for 2099, we get a little bit more of a return to form where it feels textural, fear, feels ephemeral and celestial. And and whether it's eight different composers or maybe they get 10 different composers, each of them are composing and there's a theme and everyone knows the theme and it's just kind of weaving in and out like... I don't know, but I will say this. This show cannot feel like TV. It's got to feel like the films. It's got to feel like we pulled up our chair or we sat down in the theater and we're about to watch a Blade Runner film. Like, I will not, I will not take someone saying, well, this is TV. There are plenty of shows out there right now that do not feel like TV. They feel like films. There are not a ton of them, but the good ones do. The good ones feel like films. And this has to feel like a film. This can't feel cheap. Um, 
one of the things I love about The Mandalorian is how it feels like a film. Um, the quality is just, oh, it's great. And there's a couple of episodes here and there that maybe aren't as good. But in general, it's just a really amazing show. Um, but with uh, The Book of Boba Fett, it just felt like TV. It felt a little bit cheaper. And that's my fear when you have really prestigious IP going to TV is that it feels like TV. And that's a hard thing. I mean, these aren't easy things to accomplish. It takes time. They have to kind of figure out, well, what is this going to look like? How do we make, you know, I, I will say Raised by Wolves does not feel like TV. Raised by Wolves, despite my issues with that show, looks like move, a movie. Each episode, it looks epic. It looks amazing. Um, that's the kind of like um, scope that I hope that they can achieve for Blade Runner 2099. Yeah, and in the past, I would have said, well, don't forget that's an HBO budget, but we know now that Amazon budgets are even higher than HBO budgets. Yeah. So you're right, yeah. there is not really an excuse for that. Yeah. And a good way to get around that is having a small story told well. Like, don't try to go crazy with this. And in, in terms just, you know, as we wrap uh, this, I, in terms of having, you know, that really texturally dense musical and sound language for this thing. I hope that if they do that, it's it's purely for narrative purposes. I hope that that would be, you know, yes. one remaining city or something. If they do, like, I think that's something that would be nice to return to is the idea of people being jammed together again, but have it be like really, uh, have it be oppressive in this one, if, mm -hmm. if they go that route, right? In the first one, people are jammed together, but there's all this vibrance, right? In Blade Runner 2049, people are separated other than apartment blocks. In this one, if everybody's jammed together again, have that multicultural polyglot aspect, but have it be frightening, right? Have it be like menacing, have, have it be the reality of living in such close proximity to so many people, what, what that would sound like. And then what, what do moments of beauty sound like within that too? Because Blade Runner is defined largely by the moments of beauty within it. So what does that beauty look and sound like? I, I think there's a lot of interesting questions here, but it's really dawning on me now. What a big deal this is for our show because we're <laughs> going to have so much to talk about with the lead up to this, but also when the series comes out, like we're talking about these, just so much content, which is yeah. uh which And we're the amazing. only ones doing this. Honestly, yeah, we're the only kind of fan organization operating the way that we operate. So it's going to be amazing. But I'm just yeah. like, I was thinking yesterday, I was like, holy shit, there's so much content for us. Yeah. Um, but it's exciting. Like, I just want to say like, so the, the Rings of Power trailer, if you want to call it that, debuted yesterday. And Amazon tapped the OneRing.net and kind of worked with them to present this trailer to fandom. It's been what, there's a lot of contention or whatever we won't get into that in terms of that ip right now in the hands in the hands of amazon but amazon took some time to reach out to the fans and say hey we'd love to partner with you guys for the release of this trailer so i think that there hopefully will be some great things in our future i'm really as as cautious as i am about all of this i'm also really excited this is some of the best time in fandom um, and also, you know, we run a Blade Runner podcast and we're running up to a Blade Runner or two. I'm sorry. We run an alien podcast and we are in the run up to an alien series right now. So this is for me, this excitement, this idea that we're speculating what's coming. We don't know who's going to score, who's going to direct, what's it about, who are the stars. This is what I live for in fandom. So it's, it's a really uh, a great time to be alive right now. Amen. And keep in mind, the run-up to the Alien series is also, that's Ridley Scott is, is executive producing that too. Yes. So we're talking about Ridley Scott executive producing two Titanic series based on the properties that he was partly responsible for creating in addition to like nine other projects in the next two years. So again, he is a very busy person and, uh, you know, 
Good for him. Good Indeed. for him. And good um, for us. So, good for us too. So with that, we're going to wrap. Um, this next bit is for people who are listening via our podcast channels. Um, we have a new show called Sublime Noise, which is a film score review show exclusive to Patreon. Um, we're going to be doing this show for the foreseeable future. We've gotten a lot of great reaction to it. Our first episode was Interstellar. Um, our next episode is going to be the score for Annihilation, which is up right now via Patreon. We're recording another episode tomorrow on the score for Under the Skin by Micah Levi. Um, it's just an amazing score. We're going to share with you a couple of excerpts, one of my ex favorite ex excerpts and Patrick's from the review of Annihilation. So stay tuned for that. If you like what we do, please sign up to Patreon. BladeRunnerPodcast.com forward slash support. $4 a month, all of your money goes back into the show. Now with a, you know, there's now with a, a 10, a 10 hour series on its way or more, there's a lot to talk about and there's a lot more we're going to do. We've been talking about another, uh, another maybe mini live show. We're not really sure. Certainly with the, you know, obviously Patrick, when the show premieres in whenever it does, I'll be parked at the greenhouse for, Oh yeah. You know uh, where to go. Maybe a week or two. No, <laughs> Um, but yeah, there's just, there's just a lot there. And we have another audio drama that I've need to edit. That's been sitting on my shelf for a long time with all of the components in there, um, on Sapper Morton, just a moment in Sapper Morton's life that, so all of the money that you helped support that you send to support us goes back into the show. So if you're interested, bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Amen. And before we go to these, uh, this little excerpts that we, that we have coming up, just a shout out to Jason Huta or Jason Juta, I don't know exactly which pronunciation it is, but let me know, who just joined us as a patron last night as we record yes. this. Thank you for coming on board. And uh, and thank you to everybody else who, you know, in recent weeks has, has joined. We'll do a, a larger uh, shout out to people probably on our next full episode. Sounds good. Thanks for watching, everyone. Welcome to Sublime Noise, a Patreon-exclusive Film Score Review Show. And you also have these whirring noises where you have these synths going with these oscillators coming out. And it just feels like this alien orchestra just breaking through the organic fabric of that string orchestra. And then the third section takes over a couple minutes after that. That brings those strings back, but it layers over it that synth motif that we keep referring to, which is basically wano wah, wah. The first time, first few times we hear it, there's a wano, but basically it's G flat, D flat, F, B flat with that little C appoggiatura between F and B flat. And it's played on an Oberheim two-voice analog synthesizer, which is also a synthesizer Vangelis uses for what it's worth. Uh, and so even though the texture here is really dense, you uh, you can hear basically this harmonic shift from B-flat minor to G-flat major, which is, you know, this very beautiful swelling harmonic motion, even though what's going on over it is so haunting and so strange. And you have the synthesizer making these very loud pronouncements, which I love. It's treating basically the string orchestra as the pad, which is like a synth term for the you know background music that's just sort of sitting there. Uh, and it's using the synthesizer as the lead instrument piercing through it with this very intense, very uh, you know distressing but beautiful sounding music. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in terms of uh, that I completely glossed over when we were kind of introing this, but I have a very specific relationship with Zimmer. I actually am a really big fan of his, but I also want to make sure that I tell our listeners that I remember watching Vertigo when I was a kid and hearing the music of Bernard Herrmann and having it transport me in ways that I'd never been transported before. The whole opening to Vertigo, dun, 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 dun. Like, it's just, and the entire score or um, The Man Who Knew Too Much, there's a whole piece that Bernard Herrmann wrote for The Man Who Knew Too Much to clash with the symbols at the time of this big moment in the film. And then hearing John Williams score for Jaws, who was very much informed earlier in his career by Bernard Herman. You can hear Bernard Herman earlier in John Williams' career. You don't hear it as much now. Um, I actually don't think John Williams is as good of a... He doesn't, uh, I don't think his scores are as good as they used to be, quite honestly. But that was also really informing me. But to Zimmer, the thin red line, that oh. score blew me away. It blew me away. And I felt like emotionally vulnerable listening to it. It's some of the most beautiful movements I've ever heard. I can listen to it um, apart from the movie. I don't think about the movie when I hear the score, which to me says that's a good score. Some scores I can listen to, when I listen to them, like for instance, I'll listen to the score for Ladyhawk, which is very 80s, very cheesy. I hate that score so much. I love it just because it's nostalgic, you know, right, um, right. and there's a couple of really interesting moments in it where there's some Gregorian chant um, and some, there's a couple of really, really interesting moments in there, but Zimmer really captured me. And I, when I remember hearing his music um, for the thin red line, which was the big one that made me turn my head to him, I thought, okay, this man understands music in a way that's ephemeral in a way that's moving you through time and space. <laughs> 